0: Genesis chapter 32, so Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp, and he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. Then the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies. And he said, If Esau come to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude." So he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 foals. Then he delivered them to the hand of his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, Pass over before me and put some distance between successive droves. And he commanded the first one, saying, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong and where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, They are your servant Jacob's. It is a present sent to my lord Esau. And behold, he also is behind us. So he commanded the second, the third, and all who followed the drove, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. And afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present went on over before him. But he himself lodged that night in the camp. And he arose that night and took two, took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip. And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint, and as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Peniel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask that you would uh, lead us this morning. I ask, Lord, that you would just show us what you have to say in your word. Lord, I ask that it would uh, touch hearts. I ask, Lord, that your word would be true to everybody here, Lord, that they would not be able to walk out of these doors without knowing what you have to say to them. Lord, in your name I pray. Amen. So what is this chapter about? What's going on here? This whole section of Scripture is talking about Jacob coming home. Jacob's coming home. So what we need to do is figure out, we need to lead up to this point and ask ourselves some questions. We need to figure out, where is Jacob at in his life at this point? So these are the questions I think we need to ask just to get started. We've got to go, Who is Jacob? Where is, where, is, where is his home? If he's coming home, where is, he, where, where, where is, he, where is his home at? Where has he been? Why was he gone? What has Jacob been doing there? How long has he been gone? And why is he going back? So let's take a look at those. So who is Jacob? Jacob is the son of Isaac and Rebekah. the younger twin brother to Esau. Now Jacob is the son of Isaac, who's the son of Abraham. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. That's this Jacob. That's who this Jacob is. So where is his home? Where is he heading back to? He's heading back to the land of Canaan, to the promised land. That's where he's heading home to. So where has he been? He's been in Padanaram at his Uncle Laban's house, so Rachel's brother's house. That's where he's been. Now, why was he gone? I think this is the question that has to, we have to answer to see why this whole chapter takes place. So why was he gone? If you look back in Genesis chapter 27, we looked at it a few Wednesday nights ago, if you guys were here. Jacob had deceived his blind dad, Isaac. He had tricked him into thinking that he was Esau so that he could get the blessing. So he stole the blessing from Esau. And when Esau found out about this, Esau wanted to kill him. That is why Jacob had to run. Jacob had to run for his life. He was depending on his own ability to run. So ultimately, why did Jacob have to run for his life? It's because he didn't trust God. He tried to do God's work his own way. He knew what the plan was. He knew that he was supposed to get the blessing. God had told Rebekah and Isaac back in chapter 25 that the older would serve the younger. So Jacob was supposed to get the blessing. But Isaac, his dad, wanted to give it to Esau because Esau was his favorite son. He was going to usurp God's authority and just do what he wanted to do. So Jacob decided with his mom Rebekah, we're going to trick dad and steal the blessing. So because he did it his own way, that's why he had to run for his life. He did not seek God's way. His plan that he had was full of lies and deception. So what is Jacob doing there? What has Jacob been doing while he's been at his uncle Laban's house? He's been working for Laban. While he was there, he married (coughs) Laban's two daughters, Leah and Rachel. He had 11 sons. He He acquired a numerous amount of livestock. The guy became extremely wealthy while he was there. So how long was he there? It's been 20 years. It's been 20 years since he ran for his life from Esau. He was just going to go for a few days until his mom said it was okay to come back. But because they did it their own way, he actually never saw his mom again. He was gone for 20 years. Those few days turned into 20 years. So why? Why is he going back? If we look in Genesis chapter 31, verse 3, it says, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. In verse 13 of the same chapter, it says, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land and return to the land of your family. So why is Jacob going back? It's because God told him to. God told him to go back, so he's going back. So now, 20 years later, after running for his life from Esau... He's running again. He's running from Laban now because Laban thinks that he stole all of his wealth, all of his livestock. So now he's heading back and running the other way, running for his life. What's ironic about it is 20 years ago he ran from Esau to Laban. Now he's running from Laban and he's going to be confronted by Esau 20 years later. So Jacob, what is Jacob doing? He is continually relying on his ability to run and to scheme or to plan. He's relying on his own stuff. He's relying on his own way to get stuff done. If you notice, he's always running. He's always running from his problems. He's doing this. He's trusting in his own stuff rather than trusting in God. So let's go back and let's take a look at verse 1 of chapter 32. It says, So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Mahanaim in the Hebrew means double camp, means two camps. So what did God do for him? God allowed Jacob to see that he had an army of angels surrounding him, that he was protecting him, that he was they were traveling with him. He let God, or God let Jacob see that he had that there with him. So where else? Where else have we seen God opening the eyes of people so that they can see the angels that he has around him. If you want to flip with me over to 2nd Kings chapter 6 verse 8. It says now the king of Syria was making war against Israel. And he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. So this has happened many times. What's going on is the king of Assyria, or king of Syria at this time, is Ben Hadad. Ben Hadad is trying to make war against Israel. He's trying to attack them in certain spots. But what's happening, every time he makes plans with his advisors, God lets Elisha know. Elisha is the man of God here. He lets Elisha know. So Elisha goes to the king of Israel and explains what's going on. So they know not to be in that spot at that time. So Ben-Hadad thinks, hey, I've got a spy inside my own council, inside my own advisors. So what does he do? He says... Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which one of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, It's none, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So what's he doing? He's saying, You know what? It's Elisha. Elisha knows everything you're saying. So he said, go and see where he is that I may send and get him. So what does Ben Haddad want to do? He says, if I can eliminate Elisha, I eliminate my problem. I eliminate my problem and I can go attack Israel and, and conquer them. What he does not think about, if you think about it, the Lord has revealed every plan so far to Elisha. Why wouldn't he reveal that he's going to come attack him as well? And he does. See, Elisha... Is a man of faith. He trusted in the Lord. And we can see that because the town that he's in, he's in Dothan. If he knows that the king of Syria is coming after him, why wouldn't he go a few miles to the uh, north to. I uh, uh, to, can't remember the name of the town. <laughs> Well, to the, to the town where this, the is, to Samaria. He's going to Samaria. Why doesn't he go to Samaria where it's a fortified city? It's got fortified walls. He's in a small town of Dothan. It's because he trusts the Lord. He knows that uh, he's safe. He's safe because the, he's a man of God. He fears God. He fears the Lord. He knew that God was watching out for him. So let's look in verse verse 14. It says, Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open the eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So what did Elisha do? What did Elisha pray? He's got a servant that's panicking. He's got a servant that's, you know what, he's going out that morning, and he sees that the whole town's surrounded by an army, and he knows that army is there for Elisha. So what does he do? He's panicking. So what does Elisha pray, though? I mean, what would we pray for somebody if somebody comes in here and they're panicking? Aren't we going to pray, Lord, calm their hearts? Calm their fears? It's not what Elisha prays. Elisha prays, open his eyes. Why? Why does Elisha pray to open his eyes? Because his servant was living by sight and not by faith. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, it says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. Because this servant was living by sight and not by faith, he could not see the angels that God had surrounded the city with. It's that faith. It's the faith that allows us to trust him to give us the victory. So Jacob, God allowed Jacob to see the angels. He allowed him to see that the angelic army was traveling with him. There was nothing to be afraid of. He was there to protect him. So keeping that in mind, keeping that in mind, God allowed him to see that. Let's go back and look at verse 3 of Genesis 32. It says, Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight." So what's Jacob doing here? Remember, God just let him see that he's surrounded by angels, that he's being protected. God's going with him. So what does he do? He's trying to do stuff his own way again. It's the same thing he did, why he had to run for his life the first time. He's trying to figure out a way to save himself. So what is he actually doing here in these uh, verses 3 to 5? He is trying to make a peace treaty with, with Esau. By trying to make a peace treaty with him, he's going to try to fix it. He's a smart guy. He knows what he's doing. He wants to make peace before he ever even gets there. So what is he telling Esau? He's having his servants go tell Esau. He's saying, look, I'm a rich man now. I don't need any of your stuff. He said, tell him that there's no more competition. Ask him if I can pass through here on my way back home. But if you notice in here, what is he saying? He's saying, he's calling Esau his Lord and he's saying, I'm your servant. What was the blessing that was given to him back in Genesis 27, it said, you, Jacob, will be master over your brother and let your mother's sons bow down to you. So what's he doing? He's going against what the blessing said. He's changing it because he doesn't trust in the Lord. He's only trusting in himself. So he's, just, he's trying to fix the problem by using the skills that he has. He is a smart man. He is a schemer and a planner. We've seen that throughout... His life, especially in uh, chapter 27. He knows how to manage people and livestock. This is what he's done for the last 20 plus years. He's managed people and livestock for his uh, father-in-law Laban. He's not a dumb guy. He knows he's smart and he knows how to use smart to get smarts to get done what he wants to get done. He is relying on his own skill. He is not trusting in the Lord. So what is he doing here? He's trying to make a peace treaty and he's trying to trust himself. And he's not trusting in God. Verse 6. It says, Then the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. And what would you do if 400 men were coming with a guy that wanted to kill you? Last time you had seen him, he wanted to kill you. He wanted you dead. In his mind, you were already gone. He's got 400 men coming with him. It would be awfully easy to panic. It would be awfully easy to panic and make a plan to save myself and save my family. That's what I would probably do. That ends up being what Jacob does as well. I mean, 400 men, it's no small number. If you look back in Genesis chapter 14, Abraham goes to save his nephew Lot, the kings. Four kings with their armies came and captured Lot and his family and took him. Abraham took his 318 guys out of his own family, went and conquered those guys. So this guy's got 400. He's got more than Abraham did. It's a lot of guys. What about David? When David was running from Saul, he had 400 to 600 guys with him. So, 400 guys, that's a lot of guys coming at you. And what is Esau? Esau, back in Genesis 27, Esau got a blessing as well from his father Isaac. In 27, verse 40, it says, By your sword you shall live. Jacob probably knew this. He probably knew that his dad had told Esau that he would live by the sword. So, Jacob, he has a lot of reasons to panic. There's a lot of reasons to panic and, and try to do stuff your own way. So I ask again, what would you do if you had 400 men coming at you and you knew that the guy that, that was with them wanted to kill you? I know, I, I know what I'd do. I'd panic and I'd make plans to save myself. And this is exactly what Jacob does. He's trusting in his own ability to plan. He's trusting in his own ability to scheme rather than trusting in God. And this is what he does in Verse 7. It says, so Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies. So what's he doing? It says that he's greatly afraid and he's distressed. So he's panicking. He's panicking here and he makes a plan. He's splitting his family and his possessions into two different groups because what is he planning on doing? If one gets attacked, the other one's going to run. Isn't this what he's always done? He ran from Esau, he ran from Laban. He knows how to run. He's trusting his own ability. I'm going to get out of there. He's not trusting in the Lord. Verse nine. Then Jacob said, "O God of my Father Abraham, and God of my Father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your family, and I will dwell and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies of all the truth which you have shown your servant, for I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray. From the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So what's he doing now? He's praying. He's finally praying. Right? What did he do first? He tried to make that peace treaty with with his brother Esau, then he's making a plan. He's going to go out and he's going to try to run for his life. He's going to trust in his own abilities, but now he's praying. But what actually is he praying? If you look at it in the, in the opening of his prayer and at the ending of his prayer, he's praying specific things that I want to take a look at. In the opening, verse 9, it says, "'Lord, you told me, return to the country of, and to your family, and I will deal well with you.'" And he closes with, "'Lord, you said to me, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea.'" which cannot be numbered for multitudes. So what is he doing? He's actually praying the promises that God told him. He's repeating them. Because as he's praying them, he's convincing himself. He's convincing himself that what God said is true. He's saying, Lord, you told me to go home and you would take care of me. He's saying, Lord, you said my family would be as numerable as the sand. At this point, he only has 11 sons. He can count them. So He knows that this cannot be it. There has to be more. I tried to look up how many promises there are in the Bible. And I found answers all over the place. Anywhere from 3,000 to 7,000. So if it's somewhere in there, regardless, it's a lot of promises that the Lord gives us. It's, uh, there's a lot of promises. So what is a promise from the Lord? It's never broken. If the Lord says it, if it's in His Word, it will happen. We can count on it. It's going to happen. Now, I've went through and I've found quite a few promises that I've listed out. And all these promises deal with people. It says, he promises this for people that fear him. So these are all promises for people that fear God. I'm going to run through them really quick. I don't have them up on the screen because there's quite a few. So Exodus 20, verse 20, it says, And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So what's he promising? He's promising that if we fear him, it's going to deter us from sinning. We're not going to want to sin if we actually fear him. Ecclesiastes 8.12 says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God who fear before him. So what is it saying? If we fear him, we're going to have success. At the end, we will be successful if we fear him. Psalm 25 verse 12 says, "Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses." So if we fear him, God is going to teach us. We can't have a better teacher than that. God will teach us his word. He will teach us his ways. Psalm 25:14 says, "The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant." So what does it promise? What is it promising if we fear the Lord here? He's going to promise that He's going to reveal His truth to us. We're going to know what His Word says. Psalm 33.18 says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His mercy. What's he, what's he promising if we fear Him? He's promising that He will have His attention on us. God will give us His attention. He's going to watch out for us. Psalm 34.7 The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear Him and delivers them. So what's he promising? If we fear him, he's promising that he's going to protect us and he's going to deliver us. Psalm 34.9 says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. So what's he promising? He's promising that he will provide for all of our needs. We will not have anything that we do not need if we fear him. It's a promise. Remember, these promises, he cannot break them. If they're there, it is a promise. It is going to happen. Psalm 103 verse 11 says, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. He has a steadfast love for us. If we fear him, he is not going to waver. He is going to love us. Psalm 111 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. So what do we have if we fear him? We have wisdom. Psalm 112, verse 1 says, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in His commandments. So what do we have if we fear the Lord? He's going to bless us. We have blessings from God. Psalm 115, verse 11 says, You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. If we fear the Lord, He's going to protect us. We have protection from the Lord. Psalm 145 verse 19 says, He will fulfill the desire of those who fear Him. He also will hear their cry and save them. So our our desires are fulfilled if we fear him. Acts 10 verse 35 says, But in every nation whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. So if we fear Him, we're accepted by God. Revelation 11, verse 18 says, The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, and prof- the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great. If we fear the Lord, we're going to have a reward. Those are all promises that the Lord has given us for those that fear Him. You know How do you know? How do we know? We have got to pray the promises. We have to pray them. Why? Why do we need to pray them? Because it builds my faith. Why is Jacob praying the promises? Because it's building his faith. As I pray the promises, it increases the confidence that I have. It increases my confidence that the Lord is going to deliver with what He said He's going to do. I become convinced that I can trust in the Lord to deliver me. It says in Hebrews that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is the key. So how do I know? How do I know what those promises are? Jacob knew. Jacob knew what the promises were. How did he know what they were? The only way I can know is I've got to read it in his word. I've got to read the Bible. It is the only way. Now I told you guys, if you were here a few Wednesday nights ago, I used this story. I'm going to use it again because I like it. So bear with me if you guys heard it already. Um, Back in 2012, the United States sent... And an athlete to the Olympic Games. Her name was Kim Rohde. They sent her to shoot in ski shooting competition. She won the gold medal when she went. Not only did she win the gold medal, she broke the Olympic record shooting 99 out of 100 targets. It's pretty good accomplishment. Not only that, she, that was her fifth consecutive Olympics she competed in. She medaled in all five Olympics. So if she medaled in all five Olympics, no other American has ever done that. This is why I like this story, because she was was asked in an interview, How do you set yourself apart from the others? And her answer is extremely simple. Her answer was, I shoot 500 to 1,000 rounds every day. That was her answer. That's it. So think about that a little bit. She shoots 500 to 1,000 rounds every day. What does that take? It takes discipline. You have to have discipline to go out every day. She doesn't miss a day. That's why she's won five Olympics in a row. It takes discipline. It takes dedication. If you do the math, over those 20-year time span where she was shooting in all those Olympics, she had to shoot somewhere between 3.5 and and 7 million rounds. It's crazy. Now, if we look at God's Word, in the New King James Version, there is approximately 358,000 words. If we were to read a 1,000 words a day, how long would it take to read a 1,000 words? Even if you read slow like myself, At 50 words a minute, it's only 20 minutes. 20 minutes to read 1,000 words a day. How long would it take to get through the whole Bible at 20 minutes a day, at 1,000 words a day? She shoots 1,000 rounds. Can't we read 1,000 words? It'll just take a little over two years. That's it. That's all it would take. Now, I gave a math problem to the kids in Sunday school a little over a year ago. I asked them, I said, how many times do you think you can get through this Bible in your lifetime if you studied a chapter a day? So I asked him, how long do you think we're going to live? And I got answers all over the place. So I said, let's take it at 80 years. Say God gives us 80 years, and you can read from the day you're born to 80 years, to the end of those 80 years. So obviously the answer is going to be less than this because we cannot read when we're born. If you were to read a chapter a day for those 80 years, you would only get through the Bible 24 and a half times. It's sobering to me. I would think... You could get through a lot more than that. 24 and a half times, that's not very many times. I'm already almost halfway there, so that means i only got 12 times left. That's if I do a chapter a day. How many days do I miss a chapter? Every day that I miss is a day that's lost. I don't get that day back. And I'm not just talking about reading the chapter. I'm talking about studying it. It is hard to study a chapter out in a day. It takes me a whole week to study one chapter for the kids in Sunday school. So I'm going through a lot slower pace than that for studying it out. We don't get to go through this very much in our lifetime, so take advantage of the time that you have. Don't let any of the days go by. So why? Why didn't Jacob pray initially? Why did he trust in his own plans? Why was he trying to run? Why was he trying to scheme? Why was he trying to plan? But then he prays. Why does he do that? Why do we? Why do I try to figure stuff out? My own way. I try to fix the problem, and then when it doesn't work, then I go and ask the Lord for help. Why do I do that? I've thought about that a little bit, because this is what Jacob did, and I know this is what I do as well. I came up with a few answers. I think sometimes we don't think that God's going to do anything. Sometimes I think uh, we want to be in control. If I'm in control, then I can control the situation. I think we want the glory, because if it works out, then I get the credit for it. Sometimes I think it's pride that we don't want to admit that we need help. But I think what it really boils down to is we want to rely on our own skills. I think it really comes down to we are too confident in our own abilities to get stuff done. We don't trust the Lord. In Jacob's prayer, he prays the promises, but there's something in the middle of his prayer that I want to go back and look at as he's praying the promises. If we look in verse 11, it says, Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. Why does he fear Esau? Didn't he just see that God has angels with him? Why is he fearing him? I'm going to propose to you that you cannot live in the fear of Esau or the fear of man and live in the fear of the Lord. You can't do it. It's either one or the other. So which one is Jacob doing? I would suggest to you at this point he's actually living in the fear of man. He's living in the fear of Esau. He's not living in the fear of the Lord at this point. It says in Proverbs nine ten that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Let's take a look at Hebrews eleven. Hebrews chapter eleven verse seven. I'm just going to read it to you real quick. It'll be up on the screen too. It Says by faith. Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So what's Noah doing? Noah was moved by a godly fear by faith. Noah was told to build an ark. He was told to build an ark when it had never rained. He was told that a flood was coming. They did not know what that was at that time. So Noah had a choice. He had a choice to make. He could have responded in one of two ways. He could have said, okay, God, I'm going to fear you, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to go ahead and build the ark. Or he could have listened to the people around him and said, you're crazy. Now, he could have either lived in the fear of God or in the fear of man. i got to imagine that if he's building a boat that took him over 100 years to build and they had never seen a flood and they had never seen rain, there's got to be people mocking him. There's got to be people laughing at him. It doesn't say it in the word, but I've got to believe that that's what was going on. That's a long time. I know my neighbors would probably be making fun of me if I was building a boat for a hundred years when they would never seen any rain or a flood. But what does Noah do? Noah did not care what man said. He carried on. Noah was in the ark when the flood came and he was saved because he feared the Lord. So if Jacob is fearing Esau, it makes it awfully hard to focus on the Lord. Jacob's prayer is a great prayer. He's praying the promises. But it makes it hard to believe that what you're praying is really going to come about when you're fearing man. So I want you to keep this in mind. Keep in mind that he prayed this prayer because what does he do next? So in light of this prayer, what does Jacob do in verse 13 of Genesis 32? It says, So he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and and 20 rams, 30 milk camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 foals, Then he delivered them to the hand of his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, Pass over before me and put some distance between successive droves. And he commanded the first one, saying, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong and where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, They are your servant Jacob's. It is a present sent to my lord Esau. And behold, he is also behind us. So remember, Jacob had just finished praying. He just finished praying the promises. So what's he doing? Right now he's going right back to his planning. He's trusting in his own way. He's trying to bribe Esau with a gift. If you add up what these animals, what this gift is worth in today's money, it comes out to about $400,000. He's sending a gift of about $400,000 to try to buy his brother off so that he won't kill him. So instead of trusting in the Lord, Jacob is now trying to rely on his money. He's trying to rely on his wealth to save himself. So, what has Jacob done so far? He's tried to to rely on his smarts. He's tried to rely on his ability to scheme. He's tried to rely on his ability to plan. He's tried to rely on his ability to run from problems. Now he's relying on his wealth. He needs to rely on the Lord. He needs to put... His trust in God. If we do a flip over to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19 verse 16. It will be up on the board as well. So now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have the treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So, based on this young man's position in life, how was his view of salvation affected? So we know from verse 22 that he was a rich man. We know he was a rich man. So how did it affect his view of salvation? I'd have to say... Since he's a rich man, he grew up a rich man, he's probably been able to buy everything his whole life, everything that he wanted. So if he could do that, he's probably coming from the viewpoint, I can buy salvation from the Lord. And he can't. He can't do it. He's been able to trust his money his whole life. This is one thing that his money will not get him. So he's trusting his money instead of God. So what is the biggest mistake that this young man just made? He left without putting his faith in Jesus. He left keeping his faith in the money. Right now, isn't that what Jacob's doing? Jacob is trusting in his money now. He's trusting in his wealth to get him through the situation that he's in. Back in Genesis chapter 32, verse 19, it says, So he commanded the second, the third, and all who followed the droves, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. And afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he'll accept me. So what's he saying here? He's saying, Maybe this gift is going to buy my brother off. Maybe he won't kill me. That's all he's worried about right now. Verse 21, it says, So the present went on over before him, but he himself lodged that night in the camp. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed over the fort of Jabbok. So why was Jacob up in the middle of the night? Because he was worrying. He had fear. He knew that he was going to meet Esau tomorrow. does it say in Matthew eleven twenty eight? 28 it says come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest Jacob needs to come to the Lord and trust him he needs to rely on the Lord for his rest let's take a look at Daniel chapter 3 Daniel chapter 3 is about Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar built a gold statue and had music played and wanted everybody in the land to bow down and worship that statue So that's what's going on in Daniel chapter 3. Let's pick it up in verse 8. It says, Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, wire, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. "'Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, "'Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, "'that you do not serve my gods "'or worship the gold image which I have set up? "'Now if you are ready, "'at the time you hear the sound of the horn, "'flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, "'in symphony with all kinds of music, "'and you fall down and worship "'the image which I have made, good. "'But if you do not worship, "'you shall be cast immediately "'into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace.'" And who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? So these guys, they Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they have a choice to make right now. They can either fear God or they can fear man. They can either fear God or they can fear Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar said he's going to throw him into the fiery furnace, so what are they going to do? What does it say in Exodus 20, verse 3? It says, you shall have no other gods before me. In Exodus 20, verse 4, it says, "...you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to it." So what's Nebuchadnezzar asking him to do? He's asking him to break the Lord's command. So who are they going to trust? Verse 16, it says, "...Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter." If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And He will deliver us from your hand, O King. But if not, let it be known to you, O King, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. They've made their choice. They're going to follow the Lord. They're going to put their hope and trust in Him. That's what it's about. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace 7 times more than it was usually heated, and he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. So, it leaves me to ask a question Who put them in the furnace? If the guys that the mighty men of valor died going up to the furnace, who put Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace? They did themselves. They walked in. They had to walk in if those guys died and couldn't even make it to the furnace. So if they walked in, that's how much they trusted God. They didn't know if they were going to burn or not. They just knew that they trusted God for their eternal state. They had fear. They had fear of the Lord. They did not have fear of man. You cannot have fear of man and fear of God. You can have one or the other. You've got to choose. Daniel chapter 6. Let's just flip over a couple pages here to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. In this chapter, Daniel is one of the governors of the land. He's under King Darius. Now, Darius signs a decree that says... If anybody prays to anybody other than him for 30 days, they're going to be thrown in the lion's den. So what does Daniel do? Daniel's got a choice, right? He can either fear God or he can fear King Darius. He chooses to fear God. It says in verse 10, it says, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room with... His windows opened toward Jerusalem. He knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as was his custom since early days. That was his custom. He was disciplined to pray every day. Just like Kim Rody was to shoot the thousand rounds every day. Daniel prayed every day. And he did not fear the king. He feared the Lord. He knew that the Lord... Was going to see him through. Whether he saved his life or not here, it didn't matter. He's going to trust him. And he did. Daniel ended up getting thrown into the lion's den, but God brought him out of it. Doesn't mean we're going to get brought out of it. But it doesn't matter because ultimately, nobody can hurt us here on this earth. If they hurt us here on this earth, they just send us home to God, so it doesn't matter. Back in Genesis chapter 32, uh, verse 23. says he took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip. And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So what's going on? Jacob is wrestling with God. He's wrestling with God. We can look at it and see what it says in Hosea. In Hosea chapter 12 Verses three and four, it talks about this. In verse three, it says, "He took his brother by the heel in the womb." That's Jacob. Jacob grabbed Esau's heel on the way out because Jacob wanted to be first. He was trying to pull Esau back. And it says, "And he struggled, or and in his strength he struggled with God." Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. So it's we know right here, Jacob is wrestling with God. That's who he's wrestling with. So. When the Lord says, let me go, I mean, does Jacob have the Lord pinned? Can he not get away? No. Because what does it say right here? It says that he wept. He's weeping. Because why? Because God touched Jacob's hip and took it out of socket. He separated his hip. For those of you that know anatomy, the head of the femur, which is your big bone in your leg, has a, has a ball on top. It has a ligament attached to, it, to the socket in your hip. When that separates, that snaps. snaps. It is painful to snap a ligament like that. Jacob is in pain. He's hurting. God can get away if he wants to get away, but what's he doing? He's showing Jacob that Jacob needs to rely on him, he needs to not be relying on his own abilities. So, why would God, why would the Lord purposefully cause pain in Jacob's life? Seems kind of unfair, doesn't it? Why does he do that? I think the answer is the same answer that we came up with when why do we try to fix our own problems before we go to the Lord in prayer. I think the answer is Jacob was too sure of his abilities. He was too positive in himself that he could run from any situation and make it. He was too positive that he could plan his way out of any problem. He was too confident in his wealth that he could buy his way out of any problem. So what did God do? What did God do here? God took away Jacob's ability to run. Jacob could never run again. For the rest of his life, he walked with a limp. So now instead of relying on his ability to run, Jacob has to rely on the Lord. That's ultimately what God wanted from Jacob. He wanted him to trust him, not on his own abilities. So then, why would God purposefully allow pain in our lives? He wants us to rely on Him. He wants us to trust Him. We can be too reliant on our own strength. We can be too reliant on our own skills, on our own intelligence, on our own money. It's easy in this society to bail yourself out with money. It's easy. It's easy. So God will take it away. If that's what God wants, He'll take it away because He wants us to rely on Him. God needs to take away anything that's hindering us from relying on Him. So do we trust the Lord in everything? Or do we trust, are we relying on our own abilities? Only you can answer that. Hopefully we're trusting in the Lord. But do we honestly trust Him in everything? It's hard to do. It's a hard thing to do. Let's go back and look at verse 27 real quick. And says, so he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Did God forget? Did he not know who Jacob was? No, he knew who he was. He knew who he was. What is he doing? He's giving Jacob another chance here. He's giving a chance to say who he really is. Because the last time, if you look, the last time Jacob was asked, who are you? What did he say? Back in twenty-seven, chapter 27, his dad, Isaac, asked him, who are you, my son? And he said, I'm Esau. God's given him a chance to tell him who he really is. He's going to admit. And Jacob does. He finally admits who he really is. He admits that he's Jacob. Yeah, I'm Jacob. I'm a deceiver. I admit who I am. Verse 29 says, Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. God says, You know who I am. You don't need to ask who my name is. You know who I am. Verse 30, So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Peniel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore to this day the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrink, which is on his hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. So what is he doing? He's walking with a limp for the rest of his life. He cannot run from his problems anymore. He has to learn how to rely on God. So what do his kids see as he comes back across that morning? Remember, they've been on the other side of the river. They see him limping. They're probably going to ask, what happened to you? He's going to say, God touched me. Anytime anybody asks, why are you limping? He's going to say, because God touched me. I have to rely on the Lord now. I cannot rely on my own ability to run anymore. So is it fair... Is it fair that God will allow pain in our lives? All he wants, he just wants us to trust him. That's what he wants. He is not concerned about our present comfort. He is, a, he is concerned about our eternal state. That's what he's concerned about. He will put us through pain right now to make sure that we're good with him. He knows what we need. He knows what's best for us. We don't see the big picture, but he does. Really, what He wants, He wants us to trust Him, and He wants us to rely on Him. So where are we at? Do we trust the Lord in everything? Or are we trusting on our own abilities? Are we trusting in our own skills? Are we trusting in our own strength? Are we trusting in our wealth? Are we trusting in our intelligence? Or are we trusting the Lord? Only you guys can answer that. Only I can answer that for myself. Why don't you stand, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of your word, Lord. I just ask, Lord, that you would just let it sit deep in people's hearts this morning. I ask, Lord, that they would only answer to you what is really going on in their lives, Lord. I pray that their eyes are opened. That they would be able to see what you have around them, just like Jacob's eyes were opened. And he saw the protection that you had for him. I pray, Lord, that as we pray, as we pray in our prayers, Lord, I pray that we would pray the promises in your word, that we would spend time in your word, seeking you to learn what you have for us in your word, that we would take time each day, that you would just guide us and that you would lead us and direct us through your word, Lord, that we would understand your truth and that we would be able to pray those promises and build our confidence up that you will deliver us when we need to be delivered. Lord, I pray that we would not be that we would not be set in our ways, that we would just have to rely on ourselves, that we want to do everything our way, that we would would not rely on our own wealth, that we would not rely on our own skills, that we would not rely on our own intelligence or our own strength, that we would rely on You, that we would put our trust in You, because You are the only one that can deliver us. You are the only one that can give us rest. Lord, I pray that we would not trust ourselves, that we would trust in you. Lord, I pray that you would be with everybody that's here today. Lord, I pray that you would be with them this week as they go out into the places of work or into their homes. Lord, I pray that you would be a light for you and that your word would shine through them. Lord, in your name I pray. Amen.